Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you had a great weekend. We're brought to you today by Gabby. In just a couple of minutes, you can find out if you're paying too much for your car or homeowner's insurance. Gabby.com slash martini. Much more on them a little bit later in the podcast. Jim, very good uh, martini today. Before we talk about that, so the NFL rolls out the Black Lives Matter carpet from Thursday night all through yesterday. I'm sure it'll happen twice tonight with the two Monday night games. And guess who's not satisfied? You'll be shocked to know that it wasn't enough, Jim. Colin Kaepernick tweets out yesterday, while the NFL runs propaganda about how they care about black life, they're still actively blackballing Eric Reed for fighting for the black community. Eric set franchise records last year and is one of the best defensive players in the league. So uh, no matter what they do, Jim, it's never enough. That's the rule of the woke left. No matter how much you grovel and try to appease, they'll never be satisfied. You know, Greg, if Colin Kaepernick said, yeah, this is good. I'm I'm satisfied. The issue is resolved. (laughs) Would people keep listening to him? But he's very much against his brand identity to say, no, no, this is good progress. I feel like things are getting better. And, uh, you know, my, my work here is done. Now I can go back to being a quarterback. In some ways, Kaepernick and uh, most conservatives agree then with the NFL's rollout to the NFL season. There. Yeah, yeah. He, he's not wrong that it's propaganda. Let's, let's acknowledge that. That's right. That's right. Oh, boy. All right. Well, let's actually talk about some good news. And this news just keeps getting better. Uh, This week at the White House, we're going to have the signing of the Abraham Accords. It started with Israel and the United Arab Emirates uh, deciding to normalize relations. But late last week, after our Friday recording, Jim, uh, we found out that there's somebody else coming to the party, and that's Bahrain. Uh, CNN, Donald Trump said Friday that Israel and Bahrain have agreed to the establishment of full diplomatic relations, marking the second time in a month an Arab Gulf nation has announced new ties with the Jewish state and further reshaping alliances in the Middle East. And Jim, there's some tea leaves that huge progress could be made on this front. You certainly don't want to get ahead of the the story here when it comes to Middle East uh, ties being normalized here. But according to the Jerusalem Post, and other folks have this story as well, a sermon delivered on Friday by Abdul Rahman al-Sudais, the imam of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, has been interpreted by some Arabs and Muslims as a prelude to Saudi normalization with Israel, which would be an immense uh, sea change in the Middle East. So we're not there yet, so we shouldn't uh, assume that that's going to happen necessarily. But with even just with the UAE and Bahrain on board and the Saudis and the Israelis at least, having better relations, if not normal yet, when it comes to fending off the common threat of Iran, this is amazing. It is. And I guess a little bit of perspective is in order. You know, probably most folks who have studied the Middle East recall that it was in the Jimmy Carter presidency, the peace deal between the Israelis and the Egyptians was really kind of the defining foreign policy achievement of Jimmy Carter's presidency. There was the big ceremony on the White House lawn. Uh, by the way, you know, the uh, both Sadat and was it was it Begin who signed that on the Israeli yep, side? Yep, Menachem Begin, yep. Yeah. So basically almost everyone who signs any peace treaty in the Middle East ends up getting assassinated. That, that is a sad, hard, brutal rule of law almost um, that, that basically there are enough hardliners, enough extremists in the ranks of these governments that they don't want to see it. You can go back to Yitzhak Rabin back in Israel. 
Uh, the 1990s, I think it was 1994, Israel and Jordan reached uh, diplomatic relations, which was another one. But that's like 72 years of existence of Israel, and they've got two countries, and now they got two in a month. This is you know, a really rapid development. There are a lot of times the Trump administration complains the media doesn't give them enough credit. We already saw a quote from Nancy Pelosi poo-pooing these deals. You know, this is a big deal. And as you said, if the, the, the a, a one reasonable way of looking at this is to see that this is that perhaps the Saudi uh, royal family and regime does want to establish diplomatic relations with Israel. Doesn't mean they're going to be best buddies. It just means they recognize that, you know what, considering the threat from Iran and the fact that all of these years of pledging that Israel's the Jews will be driven to the sea and we will wipe Israel off the map. There's a recognition that actually Israel's not going anywhere. It's time to move on from this vision of martyrdom and to actually create something resembling a, a stable coexistence between these states. Um, if you're, you know, if you're yelling, if your diplomats are yelling at each other, you're not blowing each other up. That is a step in the right direction. Um, and so we we may see this. It's interesting way the Saudi regime may kind of see this as sort of like almost a trial balloon. You know, let, let's have the Bahrainis try this. Let's have the United Arab Emirates go ahead with this. They're all fair. They're all in contact with each other. They're all reasonably aligned in a bunch of issues. So this may be sort of a way of preparing the Saudi public for a, hey, you know what? This is no longer a crazy radical idea. Look at these other states that have reached the same conclusion. We have come to this conclusion as well. Yeah. When your survival's on the line, your perspective tends to change a little bit. And, uh, you know, you could say that, uh, both sides of this uh, kind of harken back to the Carter years. Obviously, the Camp David Accords was his top positive foreign policy accomplishment. Uh, on the negative side, Iran is probably his worst uh, foreign policy accomplishment. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see here. Uh, the same Jerusalem Post story has clerics from Egypt and Mauritania absolutely lambasting this imam in Mecca, uh, accusing him of things like uh, treason for uh, using the, the podium or whatever they call it there at the, at the mosque in, in, in Mecca for suggesting that normalizing ties with Israel could be something that's actually achievable. So we'll find out. But uh, Jim, there's uh, more good news. Not quite as grand as Middle East peace, but it's also important for your bottom line. You know, when you're looking for ways to save money, all of us are hopefully looking for ways to save money all the time. And one of the best ways to do that is with Gabby, whether it's your car insurance or your homeowner's insurance. Sometimes those premiums, you know, you sign up in the beginning when you first buy the house or you buy the car and you just let them go. Assume you, you have a, a pretty good deal and maybe over time you don't anymore. So the good news is you can stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance. You can see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have thanks to Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. You can just link your current insurance account, and in minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you already have. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average, and if they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you have the best rate that is out there. And they will never sell your information, so no more annoying spam or robocalls. And, you know, one of the convenient things you do with a lot of your bills probably at this point, but also your insurance bills, 
is you auto pay. They just take it right out of your account, uh, whether it's monthly, quarterly, a couple times a year, once a year, however you set it up. But you didn't realize it's necessarily gone unless you're carefully looking at your statement. And even if you do notice it, you're not necessarily thinking about whether you're getting the best deal. You just kind of get on autopilot and better deals might be out there. And I got to tell you, Gabby can help you realize the best rate for the same coverage out there in just a couple of minutes. It's totally free to check your rate. There's no obligation. Take a few minutes right now and stop overpaying on your car and home insurance. So all you have to do is go to Gabby.com slash martini. You put in a few prompts like your address, your age, uh, things that you can easily enter without having to think about it or dig up in your files. Then at the end, you link to your current insurance policy. They'll tell you not only what you're currently paying, which you should probably already know, but what you can get uh, from other insurance companies for the exact same coverage. So do it now. Go to Gabby.com slash martini. That's G-A-B-I.com slash martini. One more time, gabby.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini here and let's talk about the horrific shooting in Los Angeles County over the weekend. Two Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department deputies were ambushed just sitting in their car, shot and critically injured Saturday night. Uh, They made it through surgery and miraculously yesterday the, the hospital was guardedly optimistic that they were actually going to survive, which is fantastic news. Uh, But this was clearly a premeditated shooting, an attempted murder of two different uh, sheriff's deputies. Additionally unconscionable, on the way to the hospital with these deputies in the ambulance, you've got uh, activists, as the media would say, blocking the entrance to the emergency room and people hollering out, they deserve to die. Fortunately, again, they were able to get the medical attention they need, and hopefully they're on their way to a full recovery. Uh, Obviously, President Trump uh, reacting strongly to that, uh, saying if they hadn't survived, that he'd be in favor of the quick trial and the death penalty. Joe Biden with a Twitter statement yesterday and then a longer statement after that. His Twitter statement is, this cold-blooded shooting is unconscionable and the perpetrator must be brought to justice. Violence of any kind is wrong. Those who commit it should be caught and punished. Jill and I are keeping the deputies and their loved ones in our hearts and praying for a full recovery, Jim, which is a fine statement. Um, A lot of folks will point out, again, for three months after George Floyd, you said nothing about this. And secondly, he still refuses to condemn anyone for violence in specificity other than Trump supporters for some reason. And so no mention of the treatment of the ambulance uh, headed to the hospital with those people uh, blocking the entrance and hoping that the the patients die. And there's never a call out to BLM. There's never a call out to Antifa. So I don't know. Maybe Joe Biden is scoring some political points with these statements, but his refusal to condemn the people who are engaging in this stuff is disgusting. It is deeply, deeply frustrating because Joe Biden keeps telling us he wants to be a uniter. Well, part of being a uniter means calling out the people who are wrong, even if it might be politically inconvenient. And the interesting thing is, Greg, I'm really not convinced this is politically inconvenient. I'm really not convinced those people are out chanting, we hope they die. The, 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 you know, the people who are uh, trashing the place in Lancaster over police shooting, that now that they've released video, looks completely justified. Um, that in this, this situation, like these people are not interested in Black Lives Mattering or changing police procedure or, or you know, genuine justice. These are just people who are angry at police. These are just people who hate police. And these are people who want to see the police come to harm. This isn't everybody in the Black Lives Matter movement. This isn't everybody who went to these marches for George Floyd. But unless you confront that, 
you are, this movement is never going to get traction and you're never going to have any good outcomes. And I, I've been thinking about, Greg, you know, I wrote a decent amount about criminal justice reform over the last few years. And where this really picked up traction, particularly early on, was places you might not expect, like Texas, back when Rick Perry was governor. New Jersey, back when Chris Christie was governor. Bobby Jindal in Louisiana. Uh, and the thing you notice from these, you know, often Southern, but not always states, and these generally, you know, Republican governors and Republican-dominated state governments, is it's a, I suspect there's a little bit of an only Nixon could go to China sort of effect. The argument against criminal justice reform, whether it was uh, anti-recidivism programs behind bars, uh, lighter sentences, getting more guys into drug treatment, trying to give people uh, posts after they get released into programs to uh, help them re-enter society and be productive citizens. It was always seen as being soft on crime. Like, oh, you're, you're, you know, you want to give criminals hugs. You don't really, you know, you're, you're not tough on them and all that stuff. And I suspect that it helps if you want to do a program like this. It helps to be Rick Perry. We're always going to say Rick Perry is soft on crime. He's the governor of Texas, right? We've seen him in that, uh, that ceremony with shooting the six-shooter in the air. Um, Chris Christie was a former federal prosecutor. Nobody's going to think this guy is soft on crime. And so my, in a very strange way, the more conservative, the more Republican you were, the easier time you had getting criminal justice reform proposals enacted because there was this pretty much assumption of good faith that, well, Chris Christie doesn't want to put criminals back on the streets. Rick Perry doesn't want to take it easy on violent criminals. If they're proposing this, it must be a genuinely good idea. Right now, people who might have had some sympathy towards these proposals and this, these ideas are looking at this and saying, whoa, whoa, there are people out there who hate cops. If the perception is that Black Lives Matter and any further effort at police re reform are driven by people who hate cops, lots and lots of people will oppose them and you will never get them enacted. Biden and the Democratic campaign, they've been playing small ball, they've been playing conservative, small C, uh, risk averse maybe is the best way of describing it from the very beginning. This mentality of being risk averse is actually risky because I think it makes people look at uh, Joe Biden as somebody who's really afraid to stand up to people on his own side. And that's probably the thing that's giving a whole bunch of folks who are wavering, who, who don't like Trump, who are frustrated with the last four years, but they don't want a far left administration to take over. And right now, there's very little indication that a President Biden would be able to stand up to his allies when they are flat out wrong. No, that's exactly right. And we've talked about this before, that Joe Biden doesn't necessarily have a lot of entrenched principles. He likes to be in the middle of the Democratic Party. We've said that over and over again. And so when you don't have a lot of entrenched principles, you don't know where to plant your feet. And so he just doesn't know. He's got kind of got his finger in the wind here, trying to balance his instincts maybe with the far leftward lurch of the party, which he's trying to sort of keep up with, with the with, by, by winning over the Bernie vote. He just doesn't know where he wants to be anymore. You know, Greg, let me make a parallel or a metaphor, if you will, to a topic that is near and dear to our hearts. Bad coaching in football. <laughs> you, you probably recall the, the, what used to be called, Herm Edwards used to call it the cover two defense. I, I generally called it the cover who defense because <laughs> right. no one seemed to be covered. You've also heard the prevent defense, which many people say prevents you from winning the game. And also, um, also, I should point out yesterday that as much as it was frustrating to watch the Jets, I must credit their defense for more than adequate social distancing from the Bills receivers. <laughs> uh, no one was anywhere within six feet. No one was going to catch anything yesterday. Certainly not the Jets receivers because they couldn't catch a cold. Never mind a ball. Anyway, the point being here that Biden is ahead and I'm sure he's got lots of people saying, 
Trump is self-destructing. Trump creates bad headlines every day. Whatever you do, you just want to stay in that basement in, in, in uh, Delaware. You don't want to take any more trips than you have to. You don't don't take any risks. And the problem is, as using this parallel football, sometimes you can play too conservative. Sometimes you can play just to protect your lead. And that's when you end up losing because you didn't put, continue trying to keep scoring points. You didn't try to keep it. You, know, you, you became so cautious that the opposing team was willing to take whatever you were willing to give them because you weren't playing aggressive, because you weren't playing to win, because you were effectively playing scared. When I see Joe Biden kind of soft peddling his approach to things like this, that says to me a candidate, even though he's ahead, he's playing scared. I think a lot of this is going to depend on that first debate. The first debate creates a lot of impressions in people, particularly if there are any left that actually haven't made up their mind yet. And if there's going to be any moderator who puts Biden on the spot over this, it's going to be Chris Wallace. I don't necessarily mm. suspect that Scully, especially since that's a town hall uh, event, and I don't think Kristen Welker is likely to do it. But Chris Wallace might. We will see. All right. Let's talk about our crazy martini here, Jim. And you talk about this a lot in the morning jolt. Um, in addition to all the things happening politically, internationally, otherwise, we got another hurricane coming towards the Gulf Coast tonight. So um, please be careful. Everyone listening down there, take whatever precautions you need to. Out west, the big natural disaster, of course, is the wildfires all the way up the Pacific coast and, and even inland, of course. And the main theme, main thrust of the coverage, as you pointed out in the jolt today, is this is bad. This is because of climate change. <laughs> this is because you vote for Republicans. But, Jim, as you point out in the morning jolt today, it's not that simple. It's nowhere near that simple. And Democrats have a lot to answer for here, actually. Yeah, and one of the great ironies of this is that if you want really good, solid journalism on this that talks to experts and goes into details, you can find it in places like ProPublica and left-leaning magazines like uh, Mother Jones. It's interesting that they, that they actually look at this beyond um, the, the basic, you know, well, there's a Republican president and climate change is getting worse. Therefore, these things must be connected. You know, um, They actually talk to the people on the ground. They talk to people who fight fires for a living. And the overwhelming consensus, uh, in fact, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who disagrees with this at all, is that you really need to use controlled burns as part of your process to mitigate the risk of forest fires uh, and fires in, in grasslands and basically any place you've got a risk of wildfires. The controlled burns, as people would expect, it's you, you said it deliberately, but you're monitoring it. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to create stretches of land where if a forest fire starts, it cannot spread beyond that. So you're going to have a stretch of land that's going to have a controlled burn and you're going to burn all the vegetation and it's going to look ugly for a little while. It's going to look blackened and, and all that stuff. But the thing is that if there's a natural forest fire that starts from a lightning strike or God forbid some idiot uh, leaves a lit cigarette or they have a gender reveal party or any of these things that can cause a forest fire, then it hits this area where you had the controlled burn and it can't spread any further. Now you still have some risk from embers and things like that, but generally the your controlled burns are the number one way. This goes back to the Native Americans in California doing this back centuries ago. Roughly in the 1800s, uh, this mentality took root both amongst you know, people who lived there and in the US Forest Service that could burn, all fires were bad and all fires were dangerous. Therefore, you should never let a fire burn out of control. You should never wait for the rain to take care of it. You must stop all fires at all times. And we did this for about 100 years. Guess what? Turned out to be the bad decision because what it does is it allows this constant buildup of underbrush and burning, uh, uh, you know, vines and, and every kind of considerable vegetation that burns particularly well. You know, as a matter of fact, if you have climate change going on, if you have long, hot, dry summers, 
you're going to create basically a ton of kindling in these situations. And so when people say climate change makes fires worse, yes, that is a factor. However, not doing controlled burns uh, of any stripe for the better part of 100 years and trying to make it up just from the 1960s on uh, has exacerbated a great deal. It has created the exactly the circumstances you'd want for a wildfire to burn, to, you know, hot and long and, 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 you know, in a very widespread area. What's worse is so everybody, there's almost a near, I said, this near universal recognition. You got to do controlled burns. But a lot of places, and in particular California, haven't done them because people don't like them. One, they're afraid they could get out of control. And there's a small risk of this, but I got to tell you, you know, the, the records of this are that, no, no, most people who are doing controlled burns know what they're doing. However, there's issues of questions of liability. Locals don't want it in their backyard. I don't want to see the, you know, charred uh, uh, landscapes in my area. I'll just hope that the forest fires don't come by me. Um, and then just kind of generally environmental regulations. There are some environmental groups who believe that any type of controlled burn is bad. Oh, also, by the way, they don't like logging or the idea of anything that could um, thin out some of the areas of the forest. But of course, if you thin out the areas of the forest, you could create a natural break for where these fires spread. It is uh, deeply frustrating once you dive into the policy of this. Yeah, look, if you want to argue about climate change, we can argue about climate change. But right there on the ground in California, there are things they could be doing that would make the next round of wildfires not so bad. And unfortunately, they have a regulatory process. They have all kinds of bureaucrats fighting. They have all kinds of locals who don't want this done. And as a result, it can take 18 months to get a controlled burn done. Well, while you're waiting for the controlled burn to get done, an actual fire starts and you have a wildfire burning out of control. This is, California couldn't make the wildfires go away with, a, you know, like that. But they could mitigate this significantly. And they have made deliberate choices to not do this decade after decade. And that is why they're in the situation they are. Hopefully they will learn from this. But the history, Greg, is that so far they refuse to learn, no matter how bad the wildfires get. How'd you like Gavin Newsom last week standing in the charred forest saying, this is your future, America, and it's all because of climate change? Boy, I was going to say, he almost literally was the, uh, the little dog in the fire saying, this is fine. I know. Uh, Democrats control everything. The legislature is so lopsided that uh, Republicans have zero power, literally zero power in California. But uh, somehow it's all still the Republicans' fault. But, you know, the Republican presidents uh, who have had ranches set very good examples. I mean, every time Bush was in Crawford, every time Reagan was at uh, his ranch in Santa Barbara, what were they doing? Clearing brush. They had the right idea. Look, the great irony is, is that you look at the people who want to see controlled burns. Obviously, you have those who are in charge of fire control and prevention. You obviously have farmers, ranchers. You know what's really good for stopping the spread of a fire, Greg? Vineyards. Ah, yes. Right? right? They don't have the dense underbrush. So generally, they, you know, if fire comes, it hits the vineyard. It's less likely to spread past the vineyard. Um, so you have uh, ranchers. You have loggers. You have industry. There are all kinds of people who want to do this. And the two people that generally can block it are the environmentalists who are, have this idea that all fires are bad. And then the second one are homeowners. Way to go, homeowners. On that exciting and encouraging note, Jim, uh, very, uh, it's a little bit of a cynical start to the week, but uh, we got to start somewhere. And, and I'm sure it'll get better as the week goes on. What are the odds, Greg? <laughs> See you tomorrow. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our great friends over at Gabby. 
gabby.com slash martini. Check. Just take two minutes to find out if you can save money on your car or homeowner's insurance. Also, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We would be very grateful for a five-star rating and a kind review. Also, remember you can get us on those home devices. You just have to say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day. We'll see you Tuesday on the Three Martini Lunch.